Stand with me in your Bibles to Revelation, the second chapter. Chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. We continue our consideration of the letter sent from our Lord by the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus. Again, let's read the passage, and then we'll consider God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, He that walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and patience and that you cannot bear evil men and did try them that call themselves apostles and they're not and did find them false. And you have patience and did bear for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have against you that you did leave your first love. Remember, therefore, whence you're fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to you and will move your lampstand out of its place, except you repent. But this you have that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, let's ask the Lord to help us in considering this passage of Scripture. Our Father, we would gladly allow you to come yourself and to speak without help and without instrument directly to us. But we know that were you to do it in our current state, we could not bear it. And we know that you have indeed chosen to use earthen vessels to display the excellency of the glory of Christ in the gospel. And so, Lord, seeking to be obedient to your own appointment, knowing our own inability, we ask you now to give grace and to send your word abroad to our hearts. Unfold the truth through these sinful lips to these sinful hearts and make the results redound to the glory of God, our Savior. Lord, help us now, in the name of our prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have considered from Acts chapters 18 through 20, the foundation of the church in Ephesus, as it was set in apostolic doctrine and example, and marked by a radical conversion and a reaction to that conversion among the people in Ephesus. There was a division when the people in Ephesus were converted to Christ. 
within the established religion of the day, as we found in Acts chapter 19, many of the Jews were converted and they left with the Apostle Paul and went to the hall of Tyrannus and began to study under him the gospel of Christ. So the Apostle Paul, when he preached the gospel in Ephesus, and it really took root in the hearts of men, caused a split in the synagogue there. It it caused a, a wreck in the religion. And a whole lot of folks left and followed Paul to another church and another another religious movement. You can imagine the reaction that took place. It was in that kind of milieu that the church was founded. Division within the established religion. Also, we noted that there was disruption of the established culture. In chapter 19 of Acts, the economy was affected directly as images were thrown away that brought great money to Demetrius and others. As men forsook the religion of Diana, forsook the temple worship of Diana, and that very temple was the house of much of the treasure of all of Asia Minor. In fact, it was like a gigantic bank in which men invested their funds, full of art, full of statuary, full of all sorts of culture, and it was losing out because of the gospel, and they were threatened by it. Even the vast hosts of literature that were published, the books of magic and witchcraft that were related uh, to the worship of Diana and all the pantheon of gods, multitudes of people came and burned their books and quit practicing the magic. So there was a disruption in the culture and a division in the religion. The church was founded in that kind of marking radical conversion. Then we observed the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus last week, their endurance and consistency in arduous service to Christ and his cause. We saw them as a church occupied in the ordinary required duties of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. And that's simplified by our Lord in saying, I know your works, all kinds of works. He knew both good and bad, but primarily the positive work of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. They tried those which said they were apostles and were not, and they found them false. And that way, they maintained the purity of doctrine preached in the church there. Next, we found not only was the church occupied in the ordinary required duties of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation, but it was marked by its tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in its practice. Not only proclaiming the truth, but they were guarding the truth. They were intolerant of false teaching and false teachers, and they hated evil men and their evil deeds, which is exemplified in our Lord's commendation to them that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And that's the term that he summarizes by using the word kopon or toil. Their laborious, tiresome, troublesome labors in continuing to manage the house of God and the behavior of God's people so as to adorn the gospel and vindicate and maintain the integrity of the message they had fought to preach in the lives of the people who professed to know it. So the church was faithful in maintaining the truth's purity in its proclaiming and the truth's integrity in their living. They are seen to have been faithful in their works and in their troublesome toil. But also in the third place, the faithfulness of Ephesus was seen in the fact that the church was characterized by its readiness to suffer hardship for the truth to the end. And this is the word the Lord uses, hupomone, patience or steadfast endurance 
under affliction or under trial, to bear up under and to endure, not growing weary. They, following the reaction of the legalists among the Hebrews who wanted to make the law of God more than it was, as we saw in First and Second Timothy, and cause much trouble to the leaders of the church, the Apostle Paul himself, opposed by Alexander the coppersmith, who caused him great harm, and he warns Timothy about him in Ephesus. This church had experienced the wrath and the anger of those who were losing their status as religious leaders, of those who were losing their power among the people, who were jealous of Gentiles being saved and getting the benefits of the gospel. And then the reaction of the impostors who were pretending to be Christian apostles and prophets who weren't. The church knew what it meant to suffer persecution, to suffer all kinds of trouble and problems because of the reaction of those whom they were not tolerating in their midst. But they endured it and they suffered for the stand they took. They did not compromise the truth in order to keep friends, in order to keep the membership large, in order to make sure that they didn't offend or cause themselves trouble. They weren't primarily concerned about their tax exemption. They weren't primarily concerned about the community liking them or their resume looking good when they went to apply for a job and included their membership in First Church of Ephesus on the top of their resume. They were concerned about the name of Christ. And he said, it is for this cause that I'm highly commending you, that you have endured for my namesake. So the church was characterized by a proper motive underlying their very duties. And yet, alas, in the letter to the Ephesians, having given them such a a commendation for their for their orthodoxy, for their steadfastness. They had not grown weary in this arduous duty of maintaining the truth from those from without and those from within who would pervert it, oppose it, or put it down. Yet the Lord sounds a dreadful note from his own lips to the church in the midst of this letter. Verse 4, he says, I have against you that you did leave your first love. In the midst of such commendation to an orthodox church who had not only maintained their orthodoxy, but had suffered for it and endured for it for Christ's name's sake, he says, but, and he sounds a very frightening word, but I have against you. Perhaps in your version it says, I have somewhat against you, or I have this against you. In the original, that word doesn't appear. It's simply, I have against you that you did leave your first love. I have against you that you did leave your first love. Terrible words to hear from Jesus Christ. I have against you. You don't want to hear Christ say to you, That he has something against you. The worst thing you can hear is that Christ is opposed to something about you. Is against something about you. It's an awful thought to contemplate that the Lord Jesus has something against us. We don't want to hear it. But that's what the church at Ephesus heard. And I wonder if this church this morning or any in this church this morning need to sensitize their hearts and consciences to hear such a word from our Lord. Could it be that the Lord may have against us 
that we've left our first love. My design this morning is to try to focus your attention upon your heart's condition before the Lord Jesus Christ and that love which marked you when you first came to knowing and which may well have waned since then. Well, the first thing I want us to do is to consider the background of this problem which the Lord notes in Ephesus. Then the second thing, I want us to actually understand the meaning of the words you have left your first love. Then in the third place, to state some of the causes for a church leaving its first love. Finally, in the fourth place, to note some of the evidences of true love for Christ properly expressed. And then in conclusion, hopefully, if the Lord allows, to draw some implications from what we've heard. First then, let's consider the background of the problem. You remember in Matthew 24, verse 12, our Lord speaking of the signs of the times after his departure from earth and before his return in glory, said to the apostles, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, many have thought that that prophecy was for the far distant future of Christian history, some even to the future of our own day. I submit to you, brethren, and it's one of the reasons we've gone to such pains to talk about eschatology in the pulpit here. I submit to you that Matthew 24, 12 is not talking about the far distant future. Matthew 24, 12 was fulfilled in the first century A.D., among the first apostles, the church knew what it meant for a great multitude to leave the faith whose love drew, grew cold. People who knew Christ, or at least to some degree, were acquainted with the workings of the Spirit of God. People who had been baptized into the church. People who had prayed at prayer meeting. People who had loved the preaching of the gospel grew cold in their love. The love of many will grow cold. Why? Because iniquity shall abound. And you remember in our Lord's parable of the seed and the sower, how that some of the seed fell among thorns and was choked off and didn't grow up. And when the Lord interprets it, he says, many who start out and receive the word readily and gladly and rejoice in it, later, the cares of this world and the cares for riches choke off. The very word which was planted in them and which originally they loved and received with joy. But the cares of the world choked it off and it didn't bear fruit. A frightening scenario, but a very real scenario. And one which is being placarded before our eyes across this land in building after building that has a steeple on top of it. In which inside you find nothing but cold, dry, dead wood waiting for the burning of the final judgment. And perhaps could be repeated in the hearts of many of us who sit here this morning. Remember in Acts chapter 20? The Apostle Paul warned the elders at Ephesus and he said, From among your own number, grievous wolves are going to come in to do what? To draw away the disciples. To draw away the disciples after them. And then in 2 Timothy 4 he tells why they are able to draw away the disciples from, uh, with them. It's because those disciples have itching ears. And after their own lusts, 
They heap to themselves teachers to tickle those itching ears. There are things they do not want to hear preached. So they go where somebody preaches something else. If they can't get you to stop preaching it here, they'll go down the street where a man will preach what their ears want to hear. And it's because they are filled with lusts that they can't have gratified under a faithful ministry. The Nicolaitans cannot find a home in Ephesus. Because in Ephesus, the truth is going to be preached and the truth is going to be honored. So the Nicolaitans want to find somebody who will preach that stuff to them and placate their worldly lusts and pleasures and call it the Word of God. The Nicolaitans, as we may have said to you, was an early sect, some of whom believed, and we don't know for sure, that that Nicholas, one of the early deacons, had apostatized, and there was a sect that drew near to him and followed him and went after a worldly version of the Christian faith and preached a gospel that was at its roots antinomian. In fact, the Nicolaitans, whether or not they originated with Nicholas, the, the proselyte, the Nicolaitans were known for their lewdness and their lasciviousness and their lustings and their pleasure-seeking and their saying that the gospel of grace made it okay for Christians to live and act just like that. Brethren, that's nothing new. It's nothing old. It's just the way it is, and it always has been with the people of God. Paul warned them that there'd be wolves not sparing the flock, drawing people away after them. But why would people follow a wolf? Because what he's telling them they want to hear. I want to say something very frank to you. I think we've said it before in this pulpit, but I want to say it again. Don't be duped in thinking that when multitudes of people worship in churches that are false churches and that are idolatrous, where the statues are hanging on the walls and the candles are lit and the pomp and the circumstance with no heart in it are practiced, don't think it's altogether the fault of the leaders. And the people are innocent. Don't be too quick to vindicate the people who love to have it so. Yes, wolves lie to them. And wolves deceive them. But people who have a heart for God and a love for truth do not perpetually continue on in those circles. If they are content with it, it's revealed that it's because they love the idol. They love the stuff that's encouraged by that idol. They love the practice that's allowed by that idol. Well, these wolves, Paul warned them, in Ephesus, they'll draw away the disciples after them. And then in 2 Timothy 3, he said to Timothy that this world is, a going, is going to be a perilous place to live in, Timothy. And he says the reason? Men are going to love pleasure rather than loving God. Rather than loving God, they're going to love pleasure. They're going to have a form of religion, but deny the power thereof. From such, turn away. He describes the tenor of the times as being one in which men, at the root of their character, would prefer the TV to time with God. And the way you know it is that when there's a choice to be made... The TV wins. Almost every time. If you can get them together at church, 
and are open to preaching, they'll love the preaching while they're there. But on the way home, their hearts begin to look forward to the lusts and the pleasures of the world that they've been denied for a while on the Lord's Day. Even to the point that in an Orthodox church, men and women sitting in a church building have to struggle to justify a whole 24-hour day given to God. Willing to give one, maybe two services on Sunday to the Lord's work and His worship, but wondering if it's really not asking a bit much that all afternoon also belongs to the Lord. Our hearts are filled with pressures to try to get us to justify our lack of love for God and His day. The world is characterized by such. In 1 John chapter 2, written by this apostle to whom the Lord is addressing this letter, who sent it to Ephesus, he says, It is the last hour, brethren. We know it's the last hour because there are many who were of us who went out from us. And they went out from us because they were not of us. Had they been of us, they would no doubt have stayed with us and not have gone out from us. You see, by the time 85 A.D. came and John wrote this epistle, probably even at that time as a pastor in Ephesus, as one of the leaders in the church at Ephesus, he had to give public testimony that many had left us and the leadership of our church, antichrists, preaching a false gospel, a false doctrine of Christ. They left us because they didn't belong to us. And then in that same chapter earlier, he had said to them, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not a matter of both and living in the same heart. If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't there. If you love the Father, you don't love the world. You can't have it both ways. You cannot love God and mammon. You're going to love one and hate the other. You can't mingle it and mix it. Dear young friend... You do not call the shots in your heart. You do not get to dictate to God how to juggle your affections so that you can always keep enough affections for Christ to be able to prove that you're a Christian if somebody asks. But you can also keep the things you really want in this world at hand in case you want them and want to grab them at any given time. No, the Lord will give you over to those things. He'll let you have them. He'll let you have all you want of them until you're sick at your stomach on them. He'll let you eat all the quail you want and while the, while the meat's between your teeth, your teeth, you'll, you'll find it's not as good as you thought it was going to be. If I were lined up to people in this church, if we practiced this and lined you up across here one after the other to tell your own personal, individual, specific experiences of having what this world has to offer, there wouldn't be a single person in this church that would say, I've had the world and I want more of it. Not if you were thinking. But some of you are living as though, as though you've forgotten that logic. You're still flirting with things that have almost destroyed your soul because you haven't learned the lesson. You see, the background of this problem is that by the time the last part of the first century came, the very prophecies of Christ and the declarations of Paul had already come to pass. The warnings to Timothy to avoid these kinds of people who were going to fill the church with a form of religion but denying the power thereof. By the end of the century, it had already happened. They went out from us because they were not of us. And then finally, and I want you to turn to this passage, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians. 
probably an epistle that was written in order to be circulated among several of the churches in Asia Minor, especially perhaps those in the Lycus Valley. And perhaps originally the title to Ephesus was left off of all the letters, and so at each church that received the copy, the, the term for that church was put in. Nevertheless, this particular epistle was included as among the epistle to be sent to the church at Ephesus by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 A.D. And he closes out the epistle to the Ephesians, this wonderful uh, document of high doctrine and great praise and great insight and great glory and great knowledge of the truth. Verse 24 of Ephesians 6 says, With a burning heart, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. What's the concern in Paul's heart when he writes to the Ephesians? What was he concerned about in Acts 20 when he spoke to the elders on the beach at Miletus? It was that the love of many is going to wax cold. They're going to follow false teachers. They're going to leave the faith. They're going to run away. You guys watch out. Guard them. Oversee the flock of God. Be steadfast. Watch the orthodoxy. Watch the practice because they're going to be wolves trying to tear the flock up, scatter them out, running after their lusts. And what's Paul concerned about as he concludes his letter to Ephesus? Grace be with all those that love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible or with a love of sincerity. Now, what I want to do is just list some of the places in the Scripture where this term incorruptible is used. I think some of your versions use the word sincerity, do they not? Love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That's not a good translation of the term. The term is the same word that's used. It's aftartus. It's used uh, seven times in the New Testament, and its sister word, aftharsia, is used eight times. So 15 times in the New Testament, the form of this word is used. Let me give you some examples. In Romans chapter 1, verse 23, speaking of the uncorruptible God. In 1 Corinthians 9, 25, speaking of receiving an incorruptible crown. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the dead will be raised incorruptible. Same word. In 1 Timothy 1.17, speaking of the king, eternal, immortal. Same word. Immortal. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of our inheritance and glory, which is incorruptible. In 1 Peter 1.23, speaking of the word of God, which was sown as seed in our hearts, an incorruptible seed. And then in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 4, speaking of the adornment of the heart of a godly woman, not corruptible, pure, uncorruptible. And the terminology is the same kind of thinking that we read in Romans 8, speaking of the bondage of corruption that the, that the whole creation has been subjected to. The, the creation is corrupted. And corrupting, it dies, it perishes, things rot. Everything in this world and the fashion of this world is fading away. It's its nature. That's the way it is. You name something you own in this world that is not passing away. Name something. You can reduce it down to your own body, which this morning opened its eyes, noticed the day, said, get up, 
rolled out of bed, walked where it wanted, got in the car, made it to church, and thinks it has the perfect power to go home when it's ready. The only problem is this body, which so far seems to be able to do what it wants, one day won't do what it wants. There are some sitting among us who already feel the pressure of impending corruption. Their spine is already bowed. The wrinkles have already set in. The breath is already short. The heart is already weak. The resistance is already low. The germs are getting the ascendancy. The eyes are dim. The ears are hard of hearing. The, 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 the picture is developing. And it's going to develop for all of us. It's going slowly but surely. And you who are young and don't notice the emergency of which I speak, it won't be long. Your life is but a vapor which appears for a moment and then passes away. I tell you, this word that he means, in, that he uses in Ephesians chapter 6 to describe a love for Christ which gives grace is nothing other than a word which defines immortality and incorruption, that which doesn't pass away, that which is so pure and so sincere that has unending genuineness so that no matter what happens to it, when you see it next time, it'll still be there. And it'll still be there. And it'll abide into eternity. The sister word is used in Revelation chapter 2 verse, I mean in Romans chapter 2 verse 7 to describe immortality. It's used for over and over in 1 Corinthians to describe incorruption, life and immortality. And in one place in Titus, the word sincerity with incorruption is used. What are we saying? That what Paul is, is appealing to the Ephesians for is a love for Christ as the object of that love, which has such a sincerity or purity at its roots that it will be proven by its longevity. It's a sincere love, and the reason we know it's unmixed and sincere is because it endures. The next time you see it, it'll still be there. And unto eternity, it'll still be there. It's not accidental then, is it, that even in this passage and in all the letters to the churches, we conclude with a statement of the Lord that says, whosoever endures to the end will be saved and receive all those various expressions of saving benefits. He that overcomes, we're told in the letter to the Ephesians, will have to eat of the tree of life in the garden of God. Overcomes in what way? He that overcomes in the midst of the arduous opposition of enemies, in the midst of the lurements of the world, he that continues to live in and practice the truth with warm-hearted affection for Jesus Christ unwaned. That's what he means. So we're ready to look at the actual meaning of these words. You've left your first love. For you who may have come in late, we're in Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church at Ephesus, considering the rebuke of our Lord to the Ephesians regarding having left their first love. Literally, the words did leave, you did leave your first love, mean this. You sent it away. You've omitted it. You have laid it aside. You have forsaken it. It's an active verb. It doesn't mean that somehow your first love escaped in your sleep. One night it slipped away and you didn't notice. It's an active word. The love is not being rebuked. 
The individual who does the loving is being rebuked. You have left. You have forsaken. You have laid aside that which you have. It's the same word used in the Bible with the apostles in Matthew chapter 4 who left their nets to follow Christ. Left them behind. They didn't carry them with them. They didn't kind of gaze on them with a little. They left their nets. They forsook them. In chapter 5 of Matthew, go, leave your gift before the altar and go get reconciled to your brother before you make your offering. Don't keep it. Lay it down, forsake it, and go take care of the matters with your brother before you come and make an offering. It's the word in Matthew chapter 5, when a man takes your coat, let him have your cloak also. Let him have it. Give him the rest of it and let him wear it off and you don't keep it. It's the same word translated forgive in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let them go. Throw them away. Don't call them up account against us. Don't hold them against us. Remove them from your sight. That's what the word means. It's translated forgive. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 19. Blessed are they that have forsaken all, forsaken all, and followed Christ. Lord, we have forsaken all and followed you. We've left. It's the same word in Matthew 27 that our Lord uses when he yielded up his spirit in death. He gave up his spirit in death. The same word. It means you have forsaken what you had. You walked off from it. You laid it aside. You took it off and you gave it up. You've forsaken it. You've done away with it. What we see here then is a very definite and a sad departure. The very tense that's used to describe this word is the aorist tense, which means a punctiliar action. Something you did. You definitely did it. You left. And it's an active word. You left. Your love has cooled, yes. But it's you who have caused the cooling. It's not a non-specific virus that has no roots in behavior. It's not a non-specific disease that's not your fault. It just came upon you. No, no. You left. Now, brethren, I cannot emphasize this enough. We don't say this because we're not sympathetic with our very real tendency to grow cold toward God. And as a pastor who deals with other people's hearts and consciences and who knows his own and our proneness to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the way we are. I'm very aware of and sensitive to that tendency. And normally I don't bludgeon people who come to me saying, Pastor, I'm dull. Sometimes I don't know what to say. Sometimes I don't say anything. Because I'm not sure I have a cure for it. Sometimes I myself feel enough of it that I'm scared to say anything to someone else for fear of hypocrisy. But I do know this. And after all the sympathy and after all the sensitivity and after all the patience with it, the blame is not on some nonspecific virus. It doesn't leave by osmosis. You left it. The root of the blame falls at our own doorstep, brethren. If you are cold toward Christ, it's your fault. That's the point. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ with an enduring, 
pure love, you're the one to blame. I have against you that you left your first love. You got that clear? You see what Jesus Christ says? And, and this is to a church that is highly commended. This is a reformed church. They got their doctrine straight. This is a church that practices good discipline. They've removed members who didn't follow that doctrine. Or who didn't follow that practice. They have removed professing apostles. They have been strict. They've labored. They've investigated. They're not lazy. They're commended. And they've left their first love. The Lord doesn't take this lightly. I have against you. That you've left your first love. In fact, we know he doesn't take it lightly because he says, you repent or else. Do the first works or else I'll come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place except you repent. Repent of what? Repent of leaving your first love. Go back to your first love. If you don't, it's over for you. This is no casual concern of our Lord. He's not saying, well, bless your hearts, we all get dull from time to time. No, no. I have against you, you left your first love. Now get that in your conscience. This is not some negotiable trait. This is not some kind of thing that we can sort of casually write off as, well, you know, we are all prone to it. Yes, we are. And yes, our Lord is tender toward us. And yes, He knows that we're but dust. But He nonetheless understands the root of the problem is we've left it. And we've got to return to it. Let's make sure we don't mistake that. But what is the first love? I trust you've already noted the hint in the words we've said. You left it, but what is first love? The word first here means either that which came first in time or earlier, or it means first in preeminence, most important, that which is most uh, highly regarded. I believe that this word is used in both senses in this text. Most of the commentators take the temporal meaning and suggest it means that there was a time in which they ardently loved Christ and were warmly affectionate toward him, and they're not anymore. I think that's correct. But I also believe that not only was it the love they first had originally, but it's the first love they ought to have. It's the preeminent love. It's that which supersedes all the other stuff. It's the Lord Jesus they ought to love. Not just the things they do for him. Not just the things associated with him, those are included, but it's him. I've been reading the life of Stonewall Jackson. I, knew, I put it off a long time because I didn't want to get stirred up. But I'll tell you, it hasn't bothered my political convictions in the least. It hasn't touched them. What it's done is broken my heart for what a, what a sorry excuse of a Christian I am standing up alongside a man with such a character as he had. This man... It's been had testimony borne to him by people that grew up with him and knew him that the thing that distinguished him most among all the other people around him was not so much his orthodoxy. He was a man, he's a warrior, who so loved the Sabbath day that if he could avoid going into battle on Sunday, he would avoid it. He and General Lee were very strong on the Lord's Day. General Lee would not allow anybody to deliver mail on Sunday during the war. 
Those men were, but that wasn't the thing men knew about him. They, they said, you know, the one thing about Stonewall Jackson that stands out, it was God he loved. There was a personal relationship to God. Everything he did was filled with thoughts of God. His whole life was filled with God. It was the person of God that drove him and that made him the man he was. Killed at 39 and went to his grave with men and women and children testifying they'd never met a more godly man. Many of his troop who were unsaved testified they'd never met a Christian like Stonewall Jackson. And the key element of it was it was God's person that the man adored. He loved God. You see, that's a problem, brethren. A lot of times we love a lot of things associated with God. We love the people in the church. We have a great time going to church. We love the fellowship of the church. We ought to. People that don't love the church don't love God. We love the picnics. We love the cookouts. We love the getting together after the service, before the service, between the services. We love the Friday night play nights. We love the... Where's God? Some people love the Bible in, a, in one sense. But not the God of the Bible. There are men I know who love to read and read theology and read about God, but they don't love God. And a church can become like that. I tell you, the hardest thing you'll ever do is love God. And isn't that the basic thing you're commanded to do? Love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And isn't that the battle? I mean, the battle rages in all kinds of places, but at the root of it and at the heart of it, what's the hard part? After I've done all this labor and work and struggle and orthodoxy and guardian, I find myself cold toward God. I think of heaven and my tendency is not to think of being with the Lord, but what's heaven look like? What do we do all day? Who will be there? When my heart filled with the love of Christ would be content to know only Jesus was there. What am I going to do at church today? I'm going to meet God who's promised his special presence when his people gather. Oh, Lord, I don't know how to get close to you. My prayer closet is filled with dullness because I don't see you. I don't feel you. And that's what I must have. You see, that's what's lacking. And that's the hard part. Isn't it? Some of you have never thought about that before. Hasn't been your goal, so you don't see it as such a big deal. You haven't been striving for that. You're content if you've done your duty. Read the verses, said the prayers, off on your way. Go to church, listen to the sermons, sing the hymns, listen to the prayers, go home. You've done your religious duty for the week. It never has bothered you that you don't know God. That He's not close. That you don't love to have Him near. Some of us don't even know what it means to have the Lord near. Some of us fall into some of our grievous sins just because we haven't been near to the Lord. No, he means by this first love that early, warm, and zealous affection that marked them as affectionately and arduously devoted to Christ. Warm and zealous affection for Christ that marked them in their early years. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 speaks to the children of Israel. The Lord says, I remember the kindness of your youth and the love of your espousals. The Lord remembers a time in the youth of Israel when he first saved them, when they had a warmth toward him. He quotes it in Jeremiah. What happened? Where are the people that used to feel good toward their God? 
That's what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. You see, we're engaged to be married. The excitement, the beauty of that girl, the anticipation of what was to come. Your single-minded devotion to your beloved. You gazed upon her or him and nobody could interrupt you. And you would lay your whole schedule aside. Some of you guys have to go to work at 7 in the morning. We'd stay up till 3 in, the, 3 in the morning at her apartment talking. Or be out at some coffee shop somewhere and forget the time. You just love being with her. Oh, I can't wait till we're married. I just can't wait till we're married. One of the things I tell all the ones preparing for marriage that last month, I said, look, don't get so caught up in all this gibberish that you don't enjoy each other for the last month. You so much get up in the dresses and the junk and the fall the roll and who's going to play this and who's going to show up and who's going to stand here. And the girl, by the time the wedding comes, looks like a basket case. Why? Because you, you, you tend to lose the sweet thing that characterizes betrothal and engagement. I don't want you to lose that. You see, that's the way all of us were. Before we got married, we had a longing regard for each other. We used to gaze on each other with appreciation, gratitude, and respect. Oh, Lord, thank you for bringing this person into my life. I never thought I'd get married. What a wonderful thought this is. I remember how I felt the day I walked down, uh, walked to the front and watched that bride walk down the aisle to meet me. I wept at the altar, embarrassed myself, weeping all over the place because I never believed God would let me have somebody like that. I knew I didn't deserve it. And I was overcome by it. But you know what happens when you get married and you live together for a while? Those tears don't come as quickly. Those feelings don't well up as readily. You get to know reality. And you start seeing less of the romance and more of the drudgery. And if you're not careful, you'll begin to treat your bride or your groom for granted. You'll begin to think it's okay not to express yourself warmly anymore. And you'll draw your heart back. She used to be the apple of your eye. And now she's just there. She's just a housekeeper. She's just a dishwasher. She just cooks. She's in the way. She's weak. She doesn't drive the way you would drive the car. And you're a nervous wreck all the time. And you tell her about it. She... Buys the wrong thing at the grocery store. Or gets the wrong brand and you fuss. Or she does her best all day to cook it and you say, Hmm, this isn't like it was last time. You would never would have said anything like that to her when you were dating her. Would you? Uh-uh. You were careful. You were on your best behavior then. But now you got her. You start taking it for granted. That happens. That's sort of what we're talking about. You've left that which marked your beginnings with the Lord. Where is it? It's gone. You've left it. You're not like that anymore toward the Lord. You're doing all kinds of things in His name. But your affections for Him have grown cold. You've left them. Oh, how precious the Lord Jesus was when we first met Him. He loved us as no one else had ever loved us. He forgave our sins. And like the woman at His feet, we... Loved him much because we were forgiven much. Do you remember? He opened our eyes and we saw things we'd never seen before. And we automatically loved him for opening us and letting us see it. He corrected the way we were living. And we could never thank him enough for getting us out of what we were in. And getting us into what we are now in. Remember? 
He broke the bonds of sin. Some of us were in bondage to our wretchedness. And Jesus came and liberated us. And we loved him. We could, our chests would burst with our affections toward him. We could hardly imagine loving anybody more than that. We used to pray that God would help us find words to express how we felt toward him. You remember. He delivered us from the wrath to come and we were filled with gratitude and praise. You remember how you couldn't help but go tell everybody. First got saved, you wanted your family to know it. You wanted your boyfriend to know it. You wanted your compatriots at the bar to know it. You wanted to tell everybody. And now you... Yeah. Your evangelism is cool. You've been, become sophisticated in your evangelism. You're much more selective. Well, sometimes that selectivity is wise. Sometimes it's just plain cold. And if you allow it too much in yourself, it'll spread like a cancer in a church, and a, can- and a church that has its orthodoxy and its worship and its teaching all straight can be deader than a doornail. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of peace, we used to sing. We used to be so glad God sent that Sunday school teacher or that grandmother or that friend to tell us about Jesus or that gospel tract. Wherever we first became acquainted with our need and God's provision, we remember and we're thankful. Some of us have forgotten. Some of you sitting here this morning, you hadn't thought about that in months, maybe years. You're acting like God never did anything for you. You're thinking that maybe the Lord owes you something today after all he's already given you and you've forgotten how grateful you used to be. Well, it's that way at Ephesus. From the first stirrings and the rages of the flames of love in their hearts for Christ, they had secured themselves as a church which loved the truth, preached the truth, guarded the truth. They were well-established, an apostolic church. Their doctrine was sound. Their worship was in order. Their discipline was well-defined and faithfully executed. (laughs) But Christ had something against them. Not their doctrine, not the externals of their worship, not their discipline, not their morality. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But something unobservable to the eye of man, perhaps not even noticed by themselves, the loss of their warm affections for God. And the loss of those affections are often very subtle and very deceptive. But the one who walks in the midst of his churches, who knows perfectly everything to the far reaches of his created universe and everything in the hidden recesses of our dark hearts, sees the truth about us. He who will make us to know truth in the inward parts knows the truth about our inward parts. He's not content with works, but he looks to motives. He's not blinded by our activity in his name. He sees behind it. Oh, how high we can attain in religion and miss the point of it all. How easily we can grow cold without even knowing it. The Ephesians had maintained their duties, but they had lost the animating spirit of those duties. The law of God, brethren, has not been fulfilled by the church unless she not only has endured for the truth against all opposition, but also exercised ardent love for Jesus while she endured. You see, it's not one or the other that the Lord wants and expects and requires. It's both. Yes, you must fight for the truth and contend for the truth that was once and for all delivered to the saints, but you must never lose your warm-hearted devotion to the Lord Jesus in the midst of it. You must never. You see, it's probable 
that the Ephesians had left their first love largely because of the battle that they'd been in of orthodoxy. They'd been involved in a very big battle. They'd become accustomed to fighting. Suspicion had been fostered probably by the dishonest false prophets in their midst. Now they didn't know whether to trust anybody. And you know what happens to you when you quit believing anybody? We'll hear in the weeks to come, love believeth all things. What happens when you quit believing anything? Nobody can tell you anything. You just don't. You've got to. You've always got your eye cocked. And brother, you can get into that real quickly if you deal with real people in this world very long. The best people will disown you and lie to you. They of your own household will turn you into the authorities. And if you're not careful, pretty soon you start living in a cloister mentality. You don't trust anybody. You won't give a dime to this guy. He might be lying to you about the reason he's going to spend it. You won't, you won't listen to talk to the phone to this person because you, you don't trust their motives. You won't uh, buy a car from this guy. You won't sell a car to this guy. You, you just live your life. In a, and in the church, you begin to just sort of walk watching everybody. It's especially prone to happen to pastors who are always dealing with the depths of people's sins and struggles and sometimes who are the brunt of some of those people's fightings. You get used to fighting. You get bitter from the wounds that the enemy inflicts on you. Perhaps you develop too tough a hide and too hard a heart because you get so tired of being hurt all the time. You start withdrawing yourself from getting hurt. You start insulating your heart, don't you? Pretty soon you get to a place that nobody can hurt you anymore because you don't let them get close to you anymore. The Lord can't disappoint you anymore because you don't ask anything of him anymore because you don't want to find out that he says no anymore, so you quit praying. The Lord won't drop mess up your life anymore because you're not expecting anything from him anymore. Your prayers become perfunctory. Your Bible reading becomes non-expectant, and pretty soon you're not disappointed at all. Your life is at a nice, bland, low level. Then what you do, you start trying to fill up the low with some other trinkets. More money. Better job, new house, better place to live, new car. Brethren, all those things are perfectly legitimate in themselves, but make sure you know why you're going after them before you go after them. Make sure you know what you want and why you want it. Because you may be in the process of leaving your first love. Don't ever so attach your heart to anything in this world that it even halfway threatens the attachment of your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle tells us that of some who have pierced themselves through with many sorrows because they gave themselves over to the things of this world. Well, that's something of the background and the actual meaning of what we're talking about. What are some of the causes of losing your first love and leaving it? Well, we've mentioned one. Sometimes a church in the very midst of orthodoxy becomes so polemic that it gets negative, right? The very fight makes, takes the love out of you. you. You actually get to where you look for a fight. You like to argue. You like to fuss. You like to discipline people. Pastors can fall prey to being hard on people. People can fall prey to being hard on each other. That's one reason. But I've listed a few other causes of losing, leaving your first love. The first one is this, ignorance of primary gospel realities. Ignorance of primary gospel realities. 
perhaps forgetfulness of those realities. What do I mean? Well, sometimes people don't know how great a sinner they are. And so they don't love the Lord Jesus very much for forgiving them. Some people sort of think they got saved by a cheap little ticket that they got at the front of a church one day by making a statement to a preacher in prayer. They took a hand, they filled out a card, somebody said, now you're saved, welcome, brother, and they wanted their way. There's not much to that. and doesn't provoke much love. When you know what a jerk you are, and when you know what filth there is in your heart, when you know how vile you are, and then the Lord forgives you, that has a tendency to cause you to love him. But some of us who once remembered and noticed that have forgotten it. There are some who act as though they don't remember that they ever sinned grievously at all. One of the things that stirred me the most as I grew up in among preachers and went to college and seminary training for the ministry were all the pastors that acted as though they had never done anything wrong in the world. They had that walk about them. They had that air. They never were vulnerable. They never made a mistake. They, all the words were in perfect order, and I grew up. And I said, Lord God, if you put me in a pulpit, at least don't let me become that bad. I've got enough pride already. Don't, let me become, don't ever let me forget what I am and what I was. Don't you be too critical of a pastor who is transparent before you and once in a while exposes his own weakness to you. Don't give up on his authority because he's one like you. You may get the other kind whom you can't approach because he doesn't understand what it means to fail. You don't want that. I've had that. You don't want that. Your sin is great. Your sin is vile. It's much worse than any of us really knows. Some of us forgot. And see, sin is a gospel reality. You can't preach the gospel unless you preach against sin. Sin is that which necessitates the gospel. But in addition to that, sometimes people are ignorant not only of sin as a gospel reality, but of the law of God. The law of God condemns sin. The law of God offers no hope to sinners. The law of God steps in, scopes you out, says you're wrong, and leaves you there, bloody and dead, without hope. Some of you haven't been there yet. That's why you don't love Christ yet. The Lord Jesus is no real joy to you because the law is no real threat to you. Some of you don't listen to the law, therefore it doesn't bug you. And some of you listen but don't think you broke it, therefore it doesn't bug you. But let me tell you, those of you who know the truth know the law of God says you're wrong. You've sinned. God's against you. There's no hope for you unless God does something. And then you find out God has done something in Christ and you'll love Christ for that and you won't strut around like Mr. Big Shot. You can't. I tell you, the first thing I look for in a person claiming to be a Christian is humble teachability. The first mark I look for. The thing that I will that will cause me to back up from somebody and withdraw my spirit from somebody quicker than anything else is not somebody's performance in his last church, not his record of the diaconate, not his preaching, not his gifts, not all the souls he's won, not his regular Sunday school attendance for 26 years. I look for a spirit that says, I'm nothing. If there's any good in me, it's because of grace. If there's any good thing coming out of this man, it's because God's been gracious to me. I... It's all of grace. It's all of God. It's all of Christ. If I don't get that, I I back off from that. 
You can tell me you're a Calvinist. And you can talk about the sovereignty of God and predestination and election and all those wonderful doctrines which we love. But if you don't have that air about you that you've got some more to learn, and if you don't have something coming out of you that makes me to see that you're broken because you know that that sovereign God had a right to, to condemn you forever to hell, but it's gracious and Christ's blood has saved you and that's all you owe it to, then I fear for you. And I'm not impressed with your Calvinism. Ignorance of primary gospel realities like sin and the law of God causes some people not to love God. And see, there you can be a Christian and have a low degree of your knowledge of these things and your sensitivity to them. You can forget them. You can lose sight of them. You can grow cold toward these truths and still be a Christian. I believe that many in Ephesus, I don't think the Lord is assuming they're lost. He's giving them of space for repentance. He's warning them, but he's commending them as well. He's not all against them. But I'm saying that if you don't repent, this what is now a left leaving of the love for Christ you once had will get worse and worse, and one day it'll all be gone, and there'll be no light left. Don't let it happen. But you see, a lot of people are ignorant of the grace of Christ. There are people in this room, I think probably more of these than the previous ones I just mentioned, who do know what sin is and who do know the law of God and are beaten down by your knowledge of what the law requires and your knowledge of where you stand. But you don't know or you've forgotten or you flat don't believe gospel promises about what Jesus has done for you. Some of you have lost your love for Christ because you didn't believe what he said when he said, whosoever will may come. And you didn't believe what he said when he said, if any come to me, I will in no wise cast him out. And you didn't believe what he said when he said, therefore, we are justified by faith. And you didn't believe that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And you didn't believe that where sin condemned, Christ justified and God justified. You didn't believe it. Or maybe you haven't heard it enough. Or maybe you don't read it enough. Or maybe you don't open your Bible enough to remember it. And so what happens? You either think that the grace of God is not sufficient to save you from how bad you are. Or do you think somehow that the grace of God is so exclusive that it doesn't include you. And so you get dull and disheartened and discouraged and you don't love the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you ever get it in your heart, fully settled in your heart, with a full assurance of faith in the word of God, which says that any poor sinner who comes humbly to Christ and asks will be saved. If you ever get that settled, you'll have very little trouble loving the Lord Jesus. Some of you don't love him because you've let yourself forget what he's done and how well he's done it. You got your eyes so much on yourself, you can't believe any good grace can overcome what you see. And your perverted pride has condemned you when God hasn't condemned you. I'm not antinomian, but that is a problem. And I believe a problem in this church. Well, ignorance of primary gospel realities causes a loss of love for Christ or a lack of it. In the second place, not only that, though, but the waste of essential providential resources causes us to leave the love of Christ. The waste of essential providential resources. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. God has provided for us 
time in which to know him and love him and serve him. And we've squandered it. Teach us to number our days, Lord. Man has 60, has 70 years, maybe 80 by reason of strength, and that's it. It appears for a moment and it's gone. But all that time is given to us to know God, to enjoy God, and to glorify God. How much time have we wasted? My dear friends, we've called a lot of things legitimate uses of time, and they may well be legitimate uses of time. My finger points as much in my heart as it does to anybody else in this place. But I wonder what we're going to do at the judgment seat in explaining the justification for the use of some of our time. Whenever you see the face of the glory of Jesus Christ as it really is, what's going to pale into insignificance? I'd say 90% of our recreation. We're a generation filled with wasted time. And you can never get it back. It's already gone, brethren. What you've wasted is never going to be yours to spend again. I hate to think of it. It discourages me to think of it. How much time I've wasted in my life. How much time you let your children waste. How much time you teach them to waste. By throwing things at them that that will lead them not to God but away from him. And let me tell you this, adults can handle some things that children can't handle. And you better be wise. And not assuming your kids can watch some of the same stuff you can watch or go some of the same places you can go or talk about some of the same things you can talk about. You've got to have a discernment. And I'm not talking about immorality. Nobody can handle that. God's provided Bibles to us and they lie dusty on ourselves. If we get 30 minutes a day in them, we think we've done our duty. You're not going to learn your Bible 30 minutes a day. Have you figured that out yet? But what if you don't have any more than that? I guess it depends on what you love the most, doesn't it? The scriptures say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that what the case is with us? Well, Pastor, what's it going to take? I don't know what it's going to take. What does it have to take? How much are you willing to let it take? Give the more earnest heed to the things which, which we've heard, lest at any time we drift away from them. God's provided preaching. And half the time we pay very little attention to it. We don't think it's our duty to retain every word that's preached. We don't think of ourselves as people under the, under the responsibility of God to sit on the edge of the seat. If it needs to be to take notes to help us recover our memories, to fight, to work, to get all we can get. Why? Because our love is diminished and the result of our not heeding preaching in God's word is that our love is further diminished. God's provided fellowship for us. And he tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But some of you don't love Christ anymore because you've withdrawn your soul from God's people. You never give yourself time with God's people. I tell you. There are days, brethren, when you are the only reason I can stand up and preach, humanly speaking. Just being with you and seeing what God's doing in your life encourages me that he's still doing it. Because there are times when I wonder if he's doing it in me. And I look at you and I listen to you and you build me up and say, boy, the Lord answered my prayer. God help me here. Or, Pastor, I was reading in my Bible and guess what? The, and that just thrills me and I want to come preach again. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, when I have one of those dull mornings, just walking through the congregation before I come to preach is all I need. 
to make me want to go again. I need God's people. We were talking earlier this morning. A pastor, he must never go a week without being in contact with God's people. All of his reading and his studying and his organizing and all that stuff that he's got to do. Don't lose, don't lose touch with the people. Well, how much more those of you who don't get to spend all day in your Bible? What do you do when you have time to go do something for fun? Do you go find God's people or do you go find somebody else's people? Don't tell me, yeah, but pastor, the people in the church aren't friendly. Baloney. You, you got the problem. Don't tell me the people in this church aren't friendly. I've been here longer than you have. I know them better than you know them. You don't have to meet them halfway. Don't sit back in the back pew with your arm folded and say nobody in this church loves anybody. Well, what are you? You're in this church. Do you love anybody? When's the last time you made the first step? Get off your duff. But sometimes because you're not in fellowship with God's people, you lose your love for Christ. God's given us health. But He didn't give us our health so that we could take thine ease, but so that all that was in us could bless His holy name. Some of us squander our health by junk food, by late nights, no exercise, and all of it makes it hard to stay awake on Sunday morning, stay awake on Sunday night, stay awake in our devotions, stay awake in all the things that feed the soul. We're not up to it. It's sin, brethren. Fat food is sin if it affects your ability to worship God with all your being. We've wasted essential providential resources. You know what Jesus said? Where your treasure is is where your heart will be. You spend all your time building your treasure. Pretty soon that's where your affections are going to be. The reason some of you this morning don't feel warm toward Jesus is because you haven't spent anything on Jesus. You've given him the minimum. All your resources went to you and your belly. And that's what you love now. And you are trapped and you don't know how to get out of it, do you? I'm talking about a problem in which people can know they have the problem and to be unable to change it. It's the nature of this kind of problem that it gets so deep you can't do anything about it. Even to the point that when somebody looks you in the eye and tells you about it, you get mad at him instead of yourself. You invest in Christ's cause and in Christ's kingdom and in Christ's people and you'll find yourself loving Christ. Just like you husbands, you give yourself time with your wives. And you spend time with your wife. And you listen to your wife. And you ask questions of your wife. And you get off her back. And you quit telling her what's wrong with her. And you ask her what's wrong with you and how you can straighten up your act and love her more effectively. And you spend money and time and affection, mostly time, with her. And you'll find yourself gradually one day loving her. You withdraw your soul from her, though. 
You punish her for her wrongs. As the Bible says, don't be bitter against your wife. You disobey Christ and get bitter and you shut her off from your affections and you punish her and you reward her and you back off. One day you look up and say, I don't love my wife anymore. What do you expect? And the Bible doesn't say, if you love your wife, live with her. It says, since you live with her, love her. And the Bible doesn't say, if Jesus makes you feel good, serve him. It says, since you're his, love him. You're going to have to cut out the things that distract your mind from serious and valuable meditation upon Christ. I pastor, I have a hard time meditating. You're going to have to change your habits. I'm distracted when I pray. You're going to have to shut out some stuff that's claiming your time and your thoughts. How do I do it? It's going to be work. It's going to be hard. We call it quiet time. Is it really? I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to cultivate quiet time with God. I mean quiet not only outside, but quiet inside. Brethren, it's a must. It's a must. It's got to be the first thing in your day. It's got to be. That's legalistic, Pastor. You can't tell me when I'm supposed to meet God. No, but I can tell you if you don't meet Him the first thing in the day, your life's going to be marked by a tendency not ever to get around to meeting Him all day. I'm young, but I'm not that young. You start the day in this world without first getting that time with God, and there's no time left. There's too much other stuff. Pastor, you don't understand. When am I going to sleep? I don't know. When are you going to love Christ? Jesus didn't say, you've left your sleeping habits. That's not his primary concern. Cut them out. Anything that prevents you from fulfilling the basic duties of your Christian service doing work at this church building, which is standing here crying out for somebody to notice, and you people haven't noticed in months. Deacons have to ask you to come and work. Some of you haven't volunteered anything, and you think it's because you're too busy. Brethren, what else is new? Love Christ! It's not an indictment of all of you, but some of you need to hear that. Get out of yourself. Look around. People need you. The work of Christ needs you. Do something for the Lord and before long, you'll find yourself loving Him. Well, I'm out of time, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish the third cause for a loss of our affections and then ask us to go to God and ask Him to deal with us. The third cause that I've listed for the loss of our love for Christ is our indulgence of forbidden attitudes and behavior. Our indulgence of forbidden attitudes and behavior. Sin is real in all of us. And it's going to be in all of us. But unconfessed sin has no place in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There have been no provision made for unconfessed sin except condemnation and punishment. 
He that covers his sin will not prosper, but he that confesses his sin and forsakes it will find mercy. Sin unconfessed becomes sin festering. Just like a boil that you don't lance and you let it get worse and worse, eventually becomes gangrenous and kills. Some of you, I believe, I believe some of you have let certain things you know are wrong stay in your life month after month after month thinking somewhere by magic the Lord's going to make you love Him. You pray, Oh Lord, restore to me my love for you. Lord, revive us again. Lord, make me holy. Then you go right out and the very thing God's condemned and you know it, you do it. You indulge yourself. The Lord's not foolish when He says, you may have to cut off your right hand or pluck out your right eye if you're going to get into the kingdom of God. He didn't say, if you're going to be happy. He said, if you're going to get into the kingdom. Well, a right hand's a pretty useful instrument. That's a fairly radical demand, is it not? The right eye is a very valuable commodity. Well, if that's keeping you from the kingdom of God, it's got to go. Some of you are festering your sins. They're unlanced. They're unmortified. And your whole soul is infected and sick. And that infects the rest of us. Have I been specific? I don't need to be, do I? A pastor says, sin unconfessed and the Spirit of God gets specific immediately. And you know. And if you don't know, I'm more afraid for you than that you know. What are you going to do? You see, the reason you don't love Christ the way you once loved Him is because you've let this festering sore stay in your life. And you've not hated it and forsaken it and killed it and stomped on it and mortified it and run from it. Instead, you've run from Christ. And here you are. It's interesting that in this address, in the letter to the Ephesians, the you is singular. You have left your first love. I don't know if it's because he addressed it to the pastor, the angel of the church, or because the Lord sees the bride as a singular unit, or if it means each individual sitting there hearing the letter read is supposed to take it personally. I do know this. It is supposed to be taken personally. I guess I'll ask you this question. Have you left your first love? Do you love the Lord Jesus with your whole heart? Do you love loving Him? If you have left it, return to it. It may be a battle, brethren, but cry to God. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for grace. And don't quit asking until you have it. And when you've got the stirrings of love for Jesus rekindled in you, feed them. Feed them. Put kindling on them. Increase the size of the logs on them. And get a roaring fire burning for Christ again in your heart. God wouldn't command it if God wasn't willing to grant it. Let's ask God to give us grace that we not lose it and if we have, that we return to that which we've left. Let's pray together. Our Father, if our countenance and if our spirit has been too harsh or abrupt, I pray that you would spare your people from it.
But I ask you, Lord, that at least the essence of the issue would be driven home to us. That if we do everything else right and forget you, it's all wasted. Oh, God, our Father, we are in a state and in a case which leaves us without hope unless you give grace. But, Lord, you've been gracious, not only in the past, but even in showing us our need, in giving us a heart that's even capable of knowing we've got a problem. We pray for any who may be in our midst who don't know they have a problem, who are so proud they just can't come to fall on their face before you and break it and repent. Oh, God, give grace and open the eyes and break the heart. But for what little feelings we do have of our need and our destitution and our sin, we pray you'd stir them further and that you'd give grace to us that we may not forsake you and that in all our getting we may get the wisdom that grows from a fear of God coupled with a love that's fulfilled and perfect and full-grown, which casts out slavish fear. Lord, deal with our hearts. Lord, don't let us get by with what we're going to try to do when we leave here today. Pursue us under our hearts. In your great mercy and grace, come and with a mighty hand, lead us from the slavery of our lack of love into the promised land of true and lasting affections for our Savior. Forgive this church, Lord, for all the instances and examples and evidences that are here of our cold heart toward you. And warm us again. With glowing heart we would praise you. But unless you stir the flames, we cannot do it. Hear our plea for the sake of your dear Son who deserves our deepest love. Help us, O Lord. Help us to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.